0: morning brother frank brother mike thank you for leading us listen song god bless you please turn to acts chapter 24 fairly significant overlap from this morning that I have written in my notes already that just came up in Bible study hour. So, If the Lord tells you twice, listen twice. Last time we discussed chapter 23 and if you remember verse 12 a vow is made a certain wicked vow actually that Would bind 40 probably of the Sadducees that would bind them under a curse if they didn't do something. And what they had vowed to do was to not eat or drink anything until they had killed Paul. They have a plan, they have a conspiracy that they've worked together. They're going to ask for Paul to be transferred and moved from here to there, and while he's on the way there, they plan to ambush the party and kill him. Paul's nephew providentially hears about the plot somehow. We don't know how he knows, but he tells Paul that he's heard the plot. Paul tells his nephew, You need to go tell that to the tribune. He needs to know this information the tribune after hearing the plot remember this he takes the matter very seriously very seriously he assigns 200 foot soldiers 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen he this threat of 40 people who've made a vow and are waiting in ambush he sends almost 500 troops which would probably be if jerusalem had a full cohort of soldiers, about half of the total soldiers stationed there. They get Paul out of the city. The tribune writes a letter to the governor, one Felix. In the letter, he tells him everything that's happened and why he's sending him there in the first place. Um, Verse 33, at the end, when they had come to, this is chapter 23, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So you remember, he, it's almost as if Felix says, What province are you from? Hoping it would be a different one. <laughs> but it actually is under his jurisdiction. He says, Okay, I'll give you a hearing. But let's wait until the people who brought this charge in the first place show up. Because if there's going to be a hearing, we need the, the plaintiffs and we need the defendant. And right now, we only have the defendant. So let's wait until I get here. And that brings us to today's um, chapter 24. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for um, walking us through your word. Oh, Father, we pray that you would protect our church from error and from creating an image of you after our own imaginations, Lord, but that you are God Your word is truth. Sanctify us, Lord, as we read it. Help us to correct wrong thinking that we have. Help us to see the scriptures. Please, Lord, and we pray that we would not fall into the errors of um, your people in the past who went through the the motions of worship, but their hearts were not in it. Oh Lord, help us not to be cold, but to be warm. Please help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read the whole chapter, it's not too long, it flows pretty quickly. Chapter 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude." But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem, excuse me, to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone Or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple, or in the synagogue, or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council." Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. <clears throat> Verse 22, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, But have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Five days, so I'm not a hundred percent sure which way Paul is counting out in verse 11. He says, as part of his defense, he says, you can find out that it's been not more than 12 days since I came up from Jerusalem. And Paul's point is, is that that's not a very long time. And I'm not sure if he means it's been 12 days since he went to worship and was captured. And he's been there for five days. So, seven days he was in Jerusalem before being captured, or if it was 12 days and then captured and he's been locked up for five days now. I'm not certain. But either way, there's a, there's a case that's been made against him. What's the case? Um, you know, first, the, 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 the DA in the case is saying, first, let me flatter you, Judge. You're such a good judge. Everybody likes you. Right? Isn't that what he does? He flatters the judge. Through you, we've enjoyed much peace. Reforms are being made. Everyone's grateful up up until this point, but you better side with us because 40 of us have made a vow to kill this man. And there's an implicit, I think, you don't want a bunch of trouble, right? We're always causing you guys trouble and it looks bad for you. Just, just you know, verse 4, it's almost like, let's get to the point. Let's just make it quick. Just, just side with us real quickly and this will all be out of your hair in no time. You, you know, they say, I beg you in your kindness, hear us briefly. We found this man. He's a plague. So there's there's three charges, basically. One, he stirs up riots wherever he goes among the Jews. The Romans are tired of Jewish riots. It's a common thing that happens under their occupation. And for... Them to accuse Paul of that, that would definitely get the Roman leader's attention. He's, he stirs up riots, this guy? Two, it's kind of funny language to us, but they say he's a ringleader of a new sect called the Nazarenes. He's a ringleader, this guy. He stirs up riots. And then finally they charged that he tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. We didn't let that actually come to pass, but he wanted to do it and should be charged as wanting to do it. So the three charges. He stirs up riots. He's a ringleader of Christianity. And he wanted to profane the temple. I mean, he's definitely guilty of one of those charges, right? He is a ringleader of Christianity. For sure, without a doubt. And he doesn't dispute that. In fact, he even heightens it, right? He he brings it up again. The reason they're so mad is because I keep talking about the resurrection. Further enhancing his status as a ringleader of preaching the gospel. But one, he stirs up riots that, that's false. Completely false. They're lying. They're lying. Paul makes his defense. He says, It's only been 12 days since I came to Jerusalem. How much time do you think I've had to make this giant plan to cause riots in the city? You can verify. I just got here. And they didn't find me making any riots. They're lying. Verse 12, They didn't find me disputing with anyone. I was not stirring up any crowd. In fact, if you look into it, remember the church at Jerusalem and Paul had decided that he ought to purify himself and go to the temple and make an offering and make sure people see him doing it so that this rumor that he hates the temple will be sub- it will be subdued it will go away but they see him walking with some brothers that he brought from his missionary trips in Asia and they assumed that he had had those people with him in the temple, which is not what had happened. They were lying. Verse 13, Paul says, I wasn't trying to profane the temple either. They found me there purified as I should have been. They cannot prove what they're bringing up. The only way they can prove it is because they've all agreed together to lie. All of them. Not the, not the regular witnesses. These people who have vowed to kill me. Verse 14, that's where he says, well, This is what they're really upset about But this, I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship God, the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He says... The reason they're really upset is because I keep proclaiming Christ as a resurrected Lord. And they need to bow down to Him and worship. And thank God that the Messiah has finally come. In verse 15, Paul's proclaiming a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Now listen, we've talked a lot about the resurrection of God's people. The resurrection of Jesus himself, the hope that Christians have, that these bodies that are currently in a state of decay, of aging, of sickness, in all ways, our lives are like a vapor because of sin ravaging what God has created. But Christians, what we believe is that even though that happens, even though in some cases the bodies of the deceased have turned into dust, there's nothing left, and the wind has blown all those particles every which way. And for me to tell you this as a scientist, that that collection of that person is going to be resurrected in their body we would have to cry out folly except that God has told us that it will be so except that we see the power of God when Lazarus has been decaying in the tomb for days and they warn him saying don't go in the stench will be cause you to be nauseous you'll throw up smelling that it's horrible don't go near and yet jesus calls him and he's back from the dead decay had set in Rigor mortis had set in vile things had set in on lazarus's body and jesus undid them in a moment and brought him back to life we believe this as christians don't we Please. Amen. We will rise. Jesus will not abandon our bodies. He will not. He will save us, body and soul. But what we haven't talked about much about at all is what Paul is proclaiming, a resurrection of the just and, quote, the unjust. We haven't talked about the resurrection of the wicked. The resurrection of God's people, those who are justified by faith, receivers of God's grace, saved, they're resurrected, resurrected unto glory with Glorious bodies. What are they like? Well, they're us, but new also. Right? You know, when you plant a seed in the ground, it is a tomato, but the seed doesn't look like the plant. There are seeds on the plant. I think Paul's point is, there's some continuity there, but it's different. It's better. It's glorified. What about the unjust? those dull and foolish people who think that this life is all there is, there will be no resurrection. Listen to me, and everyone who hears the sound of my voice, I plead with you, if that is your position, I beg you to reconsider. There will be a resurrection of the unjust and not for good I was reading a sermon by Brother Charles Spurgeon preached on June 4th, 1868 on this text. And I want to read some of this because he said it better than I would. Listen to this. Now, I said that this text should make the unforgiven sinner think, and so it should, and very earnestly too, because there will be a resurrection of the unjust as well as of the just. If you who are now living in sin were really to die and perish like horses, meaning dead and that's it, There might be some sort of excuse found for choosing the pleasures of this life as being all in all. After all, if there's no other world, I do not know but what the Epicurean philosophy that it's the right one. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is all there is. Do whatever you want. If we, Quote, if we are only to live in this world, it is the part of wisdom to enjoy oneself as much as possible. I do not know but that even then a man would be justified in running into vice because that does not bring enjoyment. It, uh, it is sure to entail, even in this life, the most serious results, but still... At the bottom, that old Greek philosopher had hit upon the true philosophy of life. If this life were all, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But if there be a life to come, as there is, then what a fool Epicurus was, and what nonsense his philosophy becomes. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we do not die. Or if we do, yet we live again. And in the light of living again, why eating and drinking seems such dreadful trumpery, such driveling idiocy, that a man cannot tolerate it even from philosopher or from a fool? Hang in there. Oh, if you are to live forever you who are living without thinking of your God, what sort of life must the next one be for you? You to whom even now to think of God is an irksome burden, what will the next world be for you? That book tells you, except ye repent of your sins, ye shall all likewise perish. Moreover, it tells you that there's salvation in no one except Christ. Quote, He that believeth in him shall be saved, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the Son of God. According to this book of God's perfectly revealed mind, there is reserved for you, quote, if you remain impenitent, a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation Hebrews 10:27 Matthew 10:28 Fear not him who can destroy the body only fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell why do you give so much attention to this world that is soon to be left? And the eternal things are quite forgotten or despised by you. I do not feel as if I could plead this with you with any sort of force or eager earnestness because it is really so plain that you in your sins must see it for yourselves. You surely, surely as a sober As sober-minded men, and I know there are some here who are accustomed to think, you must feel that the living throughout millions of ages ought to be of greater concern than living from week to week or even year to year. We think a man is very foolish that lives from hand to mouth and never cares to make any provision for a rainy day. But what an ass that man must be who makes no provision for that rainy day when the tempest of heaven's retribution shall beat upon his naked soul and he shall have no shelter and no way of escape. And if a man has grown aged and yet neglects eternity, if his constitution is being gradually undermined, And yet the everlasting things are despised. If he has had solemn warnings that he must soon depart. If he has seen old companions one by one taken to the grave. And he still trifles away his time lingering upon the brink of fate. What folly is this? And in what words can I describe it? Blessed Spirit, take away this folly and make men wise that they may be saved. Let this be our one great concern, with holy care to make our calling and election sure that when the master comes we may not be found castaways but may be gathered with his people. End quote. Listen, everybody who can hear my voice, God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. If you sow unbelief and disobedience, if you love sin and self and will not repent before God Almighty, you will regret it. And you will be like the rich man in Luke 16 who was in agony in the judgment of God. And you will cry out like him, Have mercy on me! Send someone with even a single drop of water to cool my tongue in the flame. And at that time, you will not receive mercy. You will receive the wages of your sin. Jesus taught that hell is terrible. The resurrection of the unjust to face God, to receive the wages of sin is terrible. Jesus taught it's worth any sacrifice to avoid it. Quote, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to have one hand and not be thrown into hell than to go into hell with both hands. Quote, It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, chop it off. Listen, any sacrifice is worth it to avoid hell. Jesus is teaching emphatically. It is horrible. I mean, you just think of the imagery of somebody's foot getting chopped off and how grotesque it is. And Jesus saying, that's better. Do that. Avoid hell at any cost. Hell is awful. If your eye causes you to sin, listen to the grotesque nature of this. Tear it out. Can you picture someone tearing out their own eye? We would look away. We wouldn't be able to look upon it. It is horrible. But we watch people around us every day running toward hell. I hope it, it makes us nauseous. I hope it bothers us. It's, Jesus said, It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Quote, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Worm can be translated maggot. Maggot. <laughs> The resurrection of the unjust to receive the wages of sin is terrible. They assume what's going to happen is they're going to live their life. Come what may, they're going to die and there's going to be no accounting. Where is God? He doesn't see. He doesn't know. And they're wrong. And if you believe that, I beg you, reconsider. There will be a resurrection of the unjust and a facing of God Almighty, naked with no shelter, no one to help you, no amount of pleading will change God's mind at that time. Now is the time of repentance. Then the time has passed. And what is the time is, is to receive the wrath of God for your disobedience and sin. The resurrection of the just, of God's people, those who have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a beautiful thing, a glorious thing. One, that I, I don't know this for certain, but in myself, I long for it more as I get older. I don't know if you guys do. The resurrection of God's people... Have you you considered this deeply? That in Christ we are immortal. Jesus said, don't fear, man. Uh, They'll kill you, but listen, you're secure. Everlasting life. Life that doesn't end. Eternal life. But for the wicked, the Scripture teaches that there will be fiery judgment. Resurrection from that long ago grave where they thought that what they did in this life didn't matter. And they could do whatever they wanted. And God wouldn't see. But He did see. And He does see. Like Israel of old when He said, You'll cry out, but I won't listen. The unjust who are resurrected from death to face the final judgment of God, it's a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, we, we can see how bad it is by Jesus' very graphic language. If your hand is causing you to lead a lifestyle that's going to end up in you being in hell. Get rid of that hand. You don't want to go there. Verse 15, Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection... Of both the just and the unjust. Verse sixteen, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. The fact of the resurrection of the just and the unjust, it's a reality to Paul. And he's trying to have a clear conscience before God and teach about it. And obey it. Too that he might, you know, he says in another place, if somehow I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, very humble faith, saying, "I hope I get resurrected." But if we ask him for sure, he would say, "Yes, I'm going to be resurrected. I believe in Jesus." Verse seventeen, he talks about why he came to Jerusalem. Remember, he had gone on three missionary trips, and on the third one, he had gone around and collected money from a bunch of churches and brought it back to give to the people there. He says, I didn't come to stir up riots. I came with offerings for poor people. Like, this is the opposite of what they're accusing me of. I came to bless people who I heard and have known are struggling right now. Verse 18 While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. He's like, I came to present alms. That's how they found me. There was no ruckus. There was no plague in the temple. Those are lies. I was not doing anything wrong. Verse 19, he starts to go into... Well, the end of 18, but some Jews from Asia, he starts to go into it. And then he says, actually, they are the ones who should be here right now. They're the ones bringing the charge. You remember the Jews who he had had trouble with during his missionary trips. They were in Jerusalem also for Pentecost. And he's had they've been following him around ever since. He said, there was no riot, there was no nothing. What it was is these Jews hate me because I preach the resurrection of the dead, especially the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 19, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul's point basically is my testimony about that, they reject. And they want me to be killed, imprisoned, stoned, locked up anything to shut me up. Verse 22, Felix, the text says he knows the teachings of the faith in Jesus. Not sure how he knows about it, but he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. It seems like if you had asked him, what's the gospel, he could tell you. Mostly. He has a rather accurate knowledge. And he decides to put it off the case. Yeah, I'll wait until later. Lock him up, but give him some liberty, we are told in verse 23. Don't prevent his friends from coming and going. If they want to bring him food or clothes or whatever he needs, don't stop him. He's a Roman citizen. He's not been found guilty yet. He, he's got some freedom. Verse 24, Paul preaches boldly, it seems like, to Felix and his wife that he would have regular um, talks with him. In verse 25, he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. It seems almost like John the Baptist was, remember? He's like, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And you remember, that's part of the reason why John the Baptist is beheaded. He speaks very boldly to hu- powerful people. Paul is, seems like doing something similar here with Felix. As he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. Like, okay, uh, that's enough for now. I'm not sure exactly, but seems like potentially. At the same time, he also, he was trying to, hoping for a bribe. So I, I was reading about this. This is interesting. It, Roman officials were prohibited from taking money for things like this. But according to historians, it was rampant at the time. Bribery. So he's keeping them in prison. And he's just saying, if I hold him for longer, his friends will probably gather up some money and give it to me. And then I'll just let him go. But no money comes. during that time, verse 26, he sent for him often and conversed with him. 27, when two years had elapsed. So he's been in prison for two years with no trial. An informal or formal hearing, I guess. But the governor just said, yeah, let's wait. We'll just wait. We'll just wait. For what? For how long? Two years is a long time. And when the two years is over, Felix is actually um, not governor anymore. Porcius Festus is his successor. And on the way out, it says, I'm not sure why Felix wanted to do the the Jews a favor, but on the way out, he tells the new governor, by the way, that guy, that guy Paul, just keep him in there. Just keep him. The Jews will be happy about it too. You'll get maybe some favor from it. Just keep him in there. I mean, he knows Paul's innocent. But he refused to do the right thing. He doesn't clear Paul of the charges, which he should have cleared him of. There's no proof of what they accused him of. Well, next time we'll read about the new governor and where it goes from there. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the way that you love us and you take care of us. We thank you for letting us know about the gospel. We would surely be lost. We would surely grope around in the darkness and stumble to try to find the divine. Yet, Father, you have stooped down to us. You've revealed yourself to us. In fact, you became fully human. Your Son, O Lord, loved us. He's a good shepherd. Thank you for sending him to redeem us. Thank you for sending your Spirit to live within us and to be our helper and to remind us about your Word. Be with us the rest of our day today. Help us to consider these things deeply. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.